On today's episode of the Read Option, we have a jam-packed episode for you today. Uh, very excited about this one. We're talking a lot about Carson Wentz, his trade from the Philadelphia Eagles to the Indianapolis Colts. I'm also joined by the first guest that we've ever had here on the Read Option, one Blake Pace, a guy I went to school with back in the day. And we're going to get into kind of everything about the Carson Wentz trade. He covered the Colts for SB Nation. He's also a lifelong Colts fan, so we'll get his perspective on what to expect here from Carson Wentz, who is now an Indianapolis Colt. And we will wrap up the show just like we have done the last couple of weeks with a nice helping of sports gumbo. So I hope y'all enjoy. Remember to like, subscribe, tell a friend, share this bad boy, and get ready. Another episode of The Read Option starts right now. All right, y'all, let's bring it in. We got a great show lined up. Excited to get into our conversation with Blake Pace here in a little bit. We're going to give you all that sports gumbo towards the end here, too. But our open today revolves around the Carson Wentz era in Philadelphia. Now, we're going to get into the cult side of this with Blake a little bit later on. But we really need to talk about Carson Wentz and what the last five years in Philadelphia has looked like for this guy. The ups and downs, the, the promise that was there, and ultimately the cumulative failure by the Philadelphia Eagles to create a successful environment for Carson Wentz. Now, it's important to remember right off the bat here that this was cumulative, right? This was everybody involved. This was the front office. This was the coaching staff. This is a lot of this falls on Carson Wentz himself. And the most underrated aspect of this that not a lot of people are talking about is the luck. None of this happens just purely out of poor mismanagement. Got to remember, in this five-year window, the Eagles won a Super Bowl. The first Super Bowl in franchise history. So as much as Philly fans and myself, to an extent, want to be able to blame all of this on Howie Roseman, because he is undoubtedly the person who has taken the biggest hit from the, the post-trade analysis and the last five years looking back, Howie Roseman in the front office in Philadelphia has been blamed more so than anybody else. But all of this happens for a ton of reasons. And I think it's worth going through, going back to when he was you know, a rookie back in 2016, all the way up until the time he was traded now in 2021 to really try to understand how this happened. Because I'm telling you now, this wasn't you know, just because Jalen Hurts got drafted in the second round in the 2020 draft, right? And this wasn't just because of how poorly Carson Wentz played here in 2020. This was four years in the making. And you kind of have to start in 2017 on that Sunday afternoon in Los Angeles when Carson Wentz tore his ACL. Got to remember how good the Eagles were that year, right? They were far and away the best team in football. The Patriots were obviously still there. There were some other, you know, pretty good teams in the NFC. You know, Atlanta had just come off the, the meltdown Super Bowl against Tom Brady, right? The 28-3 comeback. Minnesota had a promising team. Case Keenum is playing out of his mind for Minnesota, right? And that defense in Minnesota was absolutely loaded. You still had the Drew Brees-led Saints, right? And Sean Payton. So there were a lot of really good teams 
in contention in the NFC and the AFC, right? This is still kind of not peak Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, but kind of in the, in the core of, you know, they, they were just coming off one of the most impressive Super Bowl wins we had ever seen. So the Eagles amongst a group of talented teams and, and loaded teams were still the clear and away best team. Carson once was the MVP to that point in the season. He finished second in touchdown passes, despite missing the last three games of the year. If he finishes the season, I don't think it's a question that he wins the MVP. It ended up going to Tom Brady, who, you know, look, Tom Brady, we, we've talked plenty on this pod about the brilliance of Tom Brady. But when Carson got hurt in 2017, it opened the door for something that we had never really seen in the NFL, which was Nick Foles going on this miracle run to a Super Bowl, which the odds of that happening at all are, are is, is almost dumbfounding, right? The Eagles had barely won a game against the then Oakland Raiders on Christmas Day. They beat the Giants. Nick Foles threw four touchdown passes. He had a couple interceptions and actually did not play as well as those numbers indicated. He only threw for about 100-something yards. It was really not a great day, and the Giants were a bad football team at that time too. And then they go into the playoffs, and they play Atlanta in the first round. Right, They had the bye. So in the divisional round, they play Atlanta at home and they were about six inches away from Julio Jones pulling down a game winning touchdown pass on fourth and goal, right? This was not the, oh my God, 41 points in a Super Bowl and Nick Foles lighting it up or, or even the, what they did the following week, right? Those first three or four games that Nick Foles played in place of Carson Wentz, he did not look particularly good. Nobody had the Eagles going on to win a Super Bowl. In fact, they were an underdog in the first round or divisional round against the Falcons as the number one seed. But Philadelphia is a tough place to play, and they grinded it out. They end up winning that game against Atlanta, and then all of a sudden it clicked, right? And, and Nick Foles beats Minnesota, goes on to beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and it's this unbelievable storybook, how the hell does this happen, glitch in the matrix type of moment. Post-Super Bowl, though, is when all of this started to unravel, began to unravel, right? Because there's still a good amount of time between then and where we are right now. But this was the just the seeds of it, right? Carson gets hurt. It's an ACL. It was an ugly injury. He got sandwiched between the two guys. Anyone who remembers that hit knows it was tough to watch, and watching Carson limp off the field was heartbreaking. But after they won the Super Bowl, the Eagles lost their offensive coordinator in Frank Reich, who only ended up in Indianapolis because Josh McDaniels took the job and then decided after he took the job that he didn't want to go there. So the Eagles were this close from retaining Frank Reich to be their offensive coordinator. And instead, he ends up as the head coach in Indianapolis. Their quarterback coach, John Filippo, who, as you know, we've come on here, he and Reich were kind of good cop, bad cop. Reich was the good cop. Flip was the bad cop. He then gets the offensive coordinator job in Jacksonville. So returning the following year, Carson Wentz is without his offensive coordinator and without his quarterback's coach. Both of those guys have to get replaced. They promote Press Taylor. They bring in Mike Rowe. They bring in people to try to continue the development for Carson Wentz. But outside of the building, what we saw was a fan base who was in the midst of a quarterback controversy. The conversation both nationally and locally was Wentz or Nick Foles. The guy who was the MVP for the majority of the season 
or the guy who just led you to a Super Bowl. An unprecedented situation in the NFL. It's so bizarre to think you have a guy who was the odds on favorite to win the MVP before he got hurt. And then a guy who goes on a run to win a Super Bowl for a franchise and an organization in a city that had never had one. That that in and of itself is so bizarre that you can't blame the organization for struggling with how to handle it, because what do you do in that situation? Like, I, I don't know. And I think the Eagles did what they were supposed to do, which was unapologetically back up your franchise quarterback, the guy that you sold the farm for, you traded up to get to number two, and you drafted him to be the face of your franchise for 10 to 15 years. Unapologetically, they did that. They, they brought Wentz up onto the stage for the Super Bowl, the, the trophy ceremony when they won the Super Bowl. Think about how bizarre that is. Only like three or four guys get to go up on the stage to do that. And Brandon Graham, who made the play that won the Eagles the Super Bowl, wasn't up there. But Carson Wentz was, and it was a clear message. They were they were showing the world, yes, Nick Foles captured lightning in a bottle and went on this incredible run, and we love you, Nick Foles, and you're going to be the one holding up the trophy that everyone remembers but we need to make sure that our franchise, our future is on the stage standing next to you. That leads into the 2018 season, right? In 2018, Carson's recovering from surgery. And by all counts, man, he was working his ass off. I remember watching videos of Carson on his butt in the locker room and in the training rooms throwing 25 yards from his ass just to, to make sure he could still throw the football, right? Like his work ethic has never been in question. But when they go into that year, Carson, when you come back from an ACL, especially one as, as tough as that one was, you're never going to be 100%. But because they had Nick Foles under contract for one more year, they had to bring him back, right? You weren't going to cut the guy who, who just won you a Super Bowl because you are afraid of the quarterback controversy. And, and, I, and I understand that. But people in Philadelphia, the fans – the media in particular in Philadelphia, the national media, it was a conversation that entire year. And defending a Super Bowl is hard. The Eagles end up going 9-7 and seven in 2018. Carson only played 11 games. He had the back issue that ended up taking him out of the playoffs. Nick Foles plays the last three games of the season and then led them on another great run, right, where they go up, they, they beat the Chicago Bears on the double doink. And then they're an Alshon Jeffrey drop away from beating the Saints and getting to another NFC championship game. And, you know, don't even, don't take it from me. Take it from Chris Long, who was on that team. He, he says this all the time, that if the Eagles had won that game, if they had held on, come back, Alshon makes that catch, the Eagles could have defended that Super Bowl because they still had the core of their roster intact. They had set themselves up for a Super Bowl window. It's the Russell Wilson theory, right? Or not theory, but the Russell Wilson plan. You draft your young franchise quarterback, you get him on a cheap deal, and then you build the roster around him. And the roster was built, but the franchise quarterback was hurt and couldn't be in those games. So Nick Foles was the one playing in the playoffs with those rosters, not Carson Wentz. Nick Foles goes on. They lose to New Orleans, right? He then signs a, a free agency deal to go to the Jacksonville Jaguars and gets a shitload of money, which was like, awesome. We're all stoked. Now QB controversy season is done. Carson's our guy. Nick Foles is out of here. 2019. That's going to be our year. 
But the offseason going into the 2019 season is really when you started to feel the shortcomings from the front office and the coaching staff, right? You have to develop quarterbacks in the NFL. Carson Wentz was not a finished product after the 2017 season, despite the fact that he probably was going to win the MVP and was the best quarterback in the NFL that season. He was nowhere close to a finished product. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, those guys, they would even tell you that they're not finished products, right? Because you have to continue to develop. You have to continue to learn and grow and get better. Carson needed more development. And because of Doug Peterson's stubbornness and you know, unwillingness to bring in outside offensive minds to potentially help develop Carson, he ended up staying pretty stagnant from what his numbers were in 2018 going into 2019. Now, the front office failed, right? And everyone cites the, oh, they drafted J.J. Ortega-Whiteside over D.K. Metcalf, right? And that is fair, but it, it wasn't just that. It was, it, they hadn't replaced any of the linebackers that they had lost, right? They lost Jordan Hicks that offseason. They lost guys who were integral to those teams. And we had started seeing an aging out of the core pieces of what the roster that had won them the Super Bowl was you know, the Brandon Brooks and Jason Kelsey and Lane Johnson, like those guys were still really, really good in 2019. They were all pro bowlers in 2018 going into 2019, but the 2019 roster, which was depleting more and more guys who were on the Super Bowl team in 2017 by 2019, they had kind of started to cycle through a little bit. And the problem is, is they also gave Carson the extension going into the 2019 season. So now the asset of having a cheap franchise quarterback is out the window. And when that happens, the back half of the Russell Wilson model is that once you do pay your quarterback, you have to hit in the draft because you're not going to have the cap flexibility to be able to go out and sign guys who can come in and make an immediate impact. Once you break off your quarterback and you give him that bag, you have to hit on the draft and the scouting department, Howie Roseman, they all dropped the ball from that point. And this is like really when we start feeling this, because what happened in 2019, the Eagles won the NFC East, but by the skin of their teeth. And they only did it because Carson Wentz was balling out and playing hero ball, right? He is throwing to Greg Ward (laughs) and Boston Scott had the three touchdown game against the giants, right? He doesn't have the guys around him that he needs to continue the next steps of his development. But he also didn't have a coaching staff that was willing to help develop him in the first place. Not that they weren't willing, but they weren't doing a good good enough job of it. And of course, there's the stat that everybody cites, right? 4,000 yards Carson Wentz through four without a single wide receiver for having uh, having over 500 yards. And now look, he he that offense, they threw a lot to the tight ends. You had Dallas Goddard. You had Zach Ertz, right? But the Dallas Goddard draft pick even, you know, going back to the front office and, and how important is the draft, they didn't need another tight end. They could have kept Trey Burton. They could have gone out and signed a solid number two tight end for on, on a cheap deal. It's not a particularly lucrative position to be the backup tight end. But they drafted Dallas Goddard because they knew that the Cowboys really, really, really wanted him. And in a lot of ways, they did it kind of out of spite more than anything, which we then saw the Cowboys return the favor this past draft when they drafted CeeDee Lamb, even though they already had Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper. But by the time the 2019 season had ended, 
and the Eagles are in the playoffs. Carson didn't even get his chance to play in the playoffs for the Eagles. He played six snaps before Jadavian Clowney caught him in the back of the head and knocked him out of the game. So I'm not, and I'm not going to blame Carson Wentz for, for getting hurt, but this is the element here that I don't think enough fans and people are talking about when reviewing the Carson Wentz era, which is that the Eagles got really shitty luck, like really, really bad luck. All right. Their offensive line and wide receiving core was depleted for about three years in a row with the exception of Jason Kelsey. They had so many injuries and so many makeshift offensive lines. Their secondary was constantly getting hurt. The Eagles dealt with more injuries in the last three years than any other team in the NFL, and it's not close. So is that an issue with the way that you're training and in your health staff? Maybe. You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not in that field, so I couldn't tell you for sure. I I think it's odd that it happens so continuously. But nonetheless, a lot of injuries come down to luck. And even in the year they won the Super Bowl, they were depleted with injuries. Jason Peters, right? And, and obviously Carson Wentz and Jordan Hicks. Like you can go down the line since Doug Peterson was in Philadelphia and every single year that team was just constantly getting injured. So you can't discount the role that injuries played in the lack of development of Carson Wentz in the last couple of years and the less than stellar performance of the Eagles overall, despite having really high expectations post Super Bowl. Because when you win a Super Bowl, you think as a fan base, and even just as a fan of the NFL, like, oh, this team is going to be around for a while. They've done something right to put them there. And the Eagles got such terrible luck year in and year out. And I'm not using it as an excuse, but it absolutely plays a role in this. So if we look back on this, right, the coaching staff failed to develop Carson. He wasn't a finished product after 17, and they just they didn't do enough. They didn't bring in the people around him to help him get to that next level. And I, I really don't think Doug had all that much to do with the incredible 2017 season and the development from year one to year two. I think a lot of that has to do with Frank Reich and John Filippo. The front office failed to put players around Carson uh, in a way to be able to play complementary football. Yeah, we added a second tight end, you know, but if Dallas Goddard is the best player that they drafted in the Carson Wentz era, that is an absolute black mark on Howie Roseman and this entire era of Eagles football. And then, of course, Carson is to blame here, too. He failed to adapt. He put on like 25 pounds this past offseason and was still trying to move around as if he was this quick, elusive quarterback that he just wasn't. He made bad decision after bad decision. He was changing plays at the line of scrimmage from what Doug Peterson called. And on top of all that, he was so stubborn and hard-headed. He was unwilling to hear any other side of it. And maybe part of it was just, hey, the guys who I had the most success with are gone. And I had to, you know, he developed bad habits, having to play so much hero ball time after time after time. And while I'm sympathetic to that, and I understand why, he has to be able to adapt. And he never was. And on top of all of that, you have to add in the fact that luck was constantly not on their side. So let's take a step back here for a moment. Because there are a million what ifs. And, and failures by all parties involved here. 
But more or less everything that I've talked about so far for the last 20 minutes all happened before the 2020 season, before this terrible statistical year where Carson Wentz was just awful. He was terrible. 16 touchdowns to 15 interceptions, 57% completion percentage, 49.6 QBR. All right. He was terrible this year, career lows across the board. And yet all of the organizational failures here that I've talked about that led in to this year all came before this season. So this trade wasn't because they drafted Jalen Hurts. And it wasn't because of how bad Carson played this year. It's because of everything that happened leading up to the 2020 season. Now, I'm not saying the Jalen Hurts pick didn't hurt. Uh, to me, I think that is the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the thing that ultimately pushed Carson over the edge to where this relationship between he and the Eagles was never going to be fixed. It was never going to be fixed. And so while I understand the animosity that people have for Howie, it cannot be understated that this was a failure for everyone involved. Everybody from Jeffrey Lurie to Howie to Doug Peterson to Carson Wentz. And then, of course, yeah, the element of the fact that they just had terrible luck time after time. And what makes all of this so interesting is that while we will remember the Wentz era in Philly as one of the greatest disappointments by an organization, there's also a fucking Super Bowl win in the middle of it, which to me, it's a testament to how badly the Eagles screwed up and also how unlucky they were. And it kind of proves once and for all that the Eagles Super Bowl win, as much as it pains me to say, was an anomaly. And when we look back on this team and this five-year run, it will without a doubt be one of the most fascinating and curious and disappointing five-year runs by an NFL team in NFL history. All right, now joined first guest ever on the read option. It is one Blake Pace. What's going on, my friend? How are you? Not much. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be the uh, first guest. I didn't realize I was the first one to come on. The inaugural guest, man. There we go. We go back from our, our JMU days. I was wondering this. Uh, not only do we both go to James Madison, but we were both in acapella there. We were. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, what is the cross section, do you think, of guys who were in acapella in college who then are also covering sports professionally? I know. You know, it, it's always funny because I, I think back to that stuff and just like the different things that we did. You know, it might, you know we also did work with athletics a little bit on the side too. And there was very few of us, but I also know, you know, in my group, we had Chris Morris, who's now working with uh, the Denver Broncos Broncos, and doing stuff for them. So it's, it's interesting. It's a weird thing, a mix of JMU acapella individuals who choose to also uh, cover cover sports. sports. It's a, it's a weird mix, but we've got a decent amount of them. It's the best of both worlds. I'd say we're, we're like the Troy Bolton generation where we grew up where music (laughs) and sports could, could coalesce and be okay together. Yeah. But the the reason I have you on, you cover uh, the Indianapolis Colts for SB nation. uh, And what's the name of the specific sites? I know they have different ones for each team. Yep. So that's uh, stampede blue is for the Colts. Want to make sure I give you all, and you're also the host of your own podcast, which Mm -hmm. plug away. Yeah, of course. So quick hits, um, you know, we're doing uh, two podcasts a, a week this NFL offseason. 
uh, which is kicking back up tomorrow. I took a little break after the Super Bowl, but it's um, the NFL draft offseason is my favorite time of year. So, um, you know, we've got a lot of stuff going for that. And so it's, it's exciting times. It's, it's fantastic, man. I'm, I myself, it's funny in the NBA, it's become almost like the off season is bigger than the actual season. The right. NFL is just year round, man. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a 24, seven, 12 month a year kind of league, which is awesome. And you're also killing it on the gambling side of it as well. I know you yes. like to throw out <laughs> your lines. Gambling's legal here in Virginia. Now I know down right. in Tennessee, it's the same way. So uh, we've been hitting and all that, but the reason I have you on today, I want to go through, I did the open, uh, as everyone who have listened to this point would have heard to the open about the Carson Wentz deal, which is by far the thing that has dominated the NFL mm-hmm. headlines here for the last five days or so. And, and you can make the argument the last two weeks really since the kind of rumblings and it really kind of felt finalized. Um, mm-hmm. So right off the bat, I want to know just what your impression was throughout that two week stretch where it seemed like with almost certainty it was either going to be Chicago or Indy but I think most people figured Indy was the right place. So once that deal went down, what was your reaction right out of the gate? Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where you couldn't, you, you weren't really surprised after, I mean, even beyond just the two weeks of, of uh, the two weeks of um, leading up to it, where all the rumors are reporting, yes, Chicago was there. There are other teams that might've been a little bit more interested as well too. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the familiarity between, uh, you know, Frank Reich and Carson Wentz, the fact that there was no real serious offer from Chicago at all up to that point. Um, you know, it, it was one of those things where I, I was okay with it. Do I love it? No, there's a, it's a hit or miss. I'm sorry, man. No uh, worries. He's, he's found another one. <laughs> That's what dogs do, man. I apologize for that. No you worries. Good? Yeah, yeah, keep right, wrong. Perfect. We're good, man. All right, sorry. The about audience that. loves really... dogs. No one hates yeah, on dogs. Man. I know. As soon as he grabbed the toy, he found another toy in the other room. I was like, okay, this might be a problem. Uh, <laughs> but so, so the problem here's the upside and the downside with it, you know, because one thing, yes, Carson was coming off of a really rough season in 2020, where I mean, personally speaking, you know, now he's now he's the Colts quarterback. You, I want him to do well, just from a fan's perspective, but. Um, there's no question that last year was a scary situation to say, okay, we're bringing that on as our, our new quarterback and potentially committing to him for a couple of years because of that contract. You know, when we brought in Phillip rivers last season, I was okay with it because it was a one year prove it deal. Our only other option at the time was Jacoby Brissett. Um, and after we saw Jacoby in 2019, I knew that there wasn't really much to be excited about for him in the future. So with Phil, I said, okay, he's at the tail end of his career. He had familiarity with Frank Reich at that point, And I was okay with it. Bringing in Carson a lot younger, um, still has that familiarity with Frank Reich, which is eventually what got this done. Um, I, I think this is a, uh, this is a move that Frank Reich is really tying himself to where I think if it doesn't work out, people are going to have to take a look at him specifically as Hey, you wanted Phil, you wanted Carson. We didn't push the needle past, you know, whatever they might be able to accomplish um, to the point where you go, okay, well now, you know, this is your bed to lay in. Um, So, so you have to be worried about the performance aspect, but on the other side, as far as options go at this point, this to me was the best option they had remaining. I'm not a Sam Darnold fan. Um, you know, the other quarterbacks listed, I mean, if we took a vet like a Ryan Fitzpatrick, I don't think that pushes the needle further than a Carson Wentz or even Phillip last year. And then with the 21st overall pick, it would have taken a ton to try and get into the top eight for a top draft prospect. So at the end of the day, 
I don't love it. It's scary just based on, you know, what we've seen most recently from him. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it was, it was the best option. I think that was left on the table for them. Now that's a, that's a very rational perspective, obviously someone who's <laughs> familiar with the team, right? I've been curious because we, we, we've seen so much of the national, and I hate using this word, but the national narrative, right? The, right. the way that people have talked about this, I haven't gotten a good perspective and we'll get there in a second, but I haven't gotten a good perspective on what the local within the Indianapolis fan community is like, like what is Colts Twitter's right. reaction been to this? <laughs> You know, there are some people that really don't like it. There are some people that like it a little bit too much for my liking. Yeah. There are some people that think, you know, he's instantly going to become 2017 Carson Wentz. Um, and, and look, I, I'd love for that to happen. And I think that the Colts, um, you know, possess some things very similar to that 2017 team as far as offensive line production. Um, you know, that year, PFF graded Philly as the number one offensive line. Yeah, they, they were the number three. They also had the number three rush attack that year. You know, the Colts have one of the best running games, a solid offensive line, do need to replace Anthony Costanzo at left tackle. But, you know, I, there, there's polar sides of it. Some people really don't like this at all. They don't like the move. Um, they would have rather have taken a flyer on a Sam Darnold or draft a quarterback, try and trade up. And there's some people that think that he's instantly going to become 2017 Carson Wentz. So I, I'm in the middle. I, I think it's one of those situations where, Look, we have to acknowledge he uh, performed poorly, but there was also a lot going on in Philadelphia at that time that didn't make it the best situation for him. You know, injuries, um, you know, receiving talent, uh, offensive line getting banged up. There was a lot that just complicated things for him. So I don't think we get 2017 Carson Wentz. Do I believe he can have a little bit better of a career potentially? Yes, I think the situation he's walking into right now is a little bit better. And that whole kind of fresh start thing definitely hopefully, you know, sparks something be, uh, between there and he can reinvent some things with Frank Reich. But, um, you know, the Colts response has been been pretty in the middle. I think it's a lot of just and it's the same as when we brought in Philip Rivers. It was a bunch of we're just going to have to see it. We're going to have to see it on the field because. You know, Philip in 2018 had one of his worst seasons of, of you know, the decade. And people signed when, when we brought him in. It was like, OK, you know, he's a 39 year old quarterback coming off of his worst season. But at the same time, he was in a situation where the offensive line was banged up. The offensive system was based on a run heavy offense and they didn't have the, the best rush attack. So, you know, it really comes down to, you know, it it's really a, a huge question in my mind as to what we're going to get out of him. But I do tend to lean a little bit on the positive side, just because we saw this Colts team with Phillip rivers kind of turn things around and get back into the postseason last year. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause you know, I think a lot of the, you have the guys like Dan Orlovsky who just love Carson Wentz and I, and MVP. I like, yeah, right. MVP, and, man. <laughs> well, and that's part right. It's, it's, there is, it, it was funny watching it on, was it th Thursday, Friday, whichever day yeah. the trade went down. And, you know, all of a sudden on Twitter, the, the conversation surrounding Carson Wentz was everyone focusing on the 2020 year in terms of getting rid of Carson Wentz and moving him out of Philadelphia. But then once he was out, all the conversation was, yeah, but 2017. Right. I remember 2017. And yeah. I don't think he'll ever be as bad as what we saw this past year was. At least I would mm -hmm. be surprised if we did. Right. I think that the – the realistic expectations or even just the realistic hopeful ex expectations is that he falls somewhere between 2017 Carson Wentz and 2019 Carson Wentz, which was the guy who threw for 4,000 yards without having a wide receiver hit that 500 right. yard mark, right. Who was able to kind mm -hmm. of play this hero ball style of, of quarterback to get them to the next level. Now, 
one of the things that was talked about a lot and has been almost talked to death has been the relationship between Carson and Frank Reich. Now we are entering year number four since the Andrew Luck retirement. And since then it's been this kind of revolving door a of quarterbacks, but I feel like there's been this kind of cloud that's hung over Indianapolis's head. So I find it interesting. You're talking about, you know, Frank Reich, this is almost like a make or break moment for him. I would think he would have a little bit longer of a leash. Now you're more plugged in there than I am. So, you know, I would just think, give him the success. I think the expectations for mm-hmm. Phil Rivers going into last year, like you said, he's a 39 year old quarterback. You know, how much are you right. going to get out of it for a long-term perspective? What does Carson Wentz need to do to kind of stop that quarterback carousel to give some sort of long-term stability at that position for the Colts? You know, I, I really do believe for him, I, there's a couple different things that go into it. At the very least, I just think he needs to be an average caliber quarterback for the Colts to be okay with it. You know, they were the only team this past year to have a top 10 offense, defense, and special teams. So they've got a well-rounded team, and it's a very young team as well, too. You know, the leash with Frank Reich, the only reason I mention that is because, um, you know, it's it's come out now that uh, last offseason, the Colts were considering a few different potential aging quarterbacks to bring in. They ended up going with Rivers because that was the one that Frank Reich had familiarity with. He says, I can get the most out of it. And look, Phil had a pretty good year. It wasn't, you know, obviously explosive, but for a 39-year-old, I was happy with it. I was happy with what we got out of him. It was better than what I expected. So I, I'm, I'm thinking the same with Carson. Really, we just need a quarterback who can open up a little more of the playbook. And, I, and what I mean by that is both with Jacoby and Phillip Rivers, there was one thing that was missing a ton, and that was the ability to stretch the field deep. And it was also to move outside of the pocket. Jacoby brought a little bit of movement and mobility, but his arm uh, deep accuracy was not something that he, and he kind of got in his head a little bit and became just a check down quarterback. Um, Phil was very immobile. So I think that this move in itself is to just get Frank Reich back to the play caller he wants to be where he doesn't necessarily have to manage a quarterback who is inaccurate or a quarterback that can't move out of the pocket. Um, I, I think we get a lot more of the RPO offense that we saw from 2017 back into this game, but there are some things that Carson has to adjust. His throwing motion uh, really took some weird, weird changes in 2020 where it was a lot lower. He used to hold it up a lot higher, which created a much quicker tight spiral. So there's a lot of things mechanically that I worry about. And he also had this tendency to not take the easy options and the field. Sometimes some of these check down throws, these easy routes across the middle. Um, he was kind of playing, like you said, a little bit of hero ball at one point where he was trying to do too much to a certain point. So, you know, for Carson, there is mechanics that I do think need a lot of improvement and, and hopefully getting back with guys that he's worked with before can help with that. Um, But in terms of production wise, what he needs to be a quarterback beyond next season and beyond even 2022, I really think it's just average or above average talent because, you know, Phillip wasn't amazing and they were still a playoff team and and Jacoby Brissett before he got hurt, they were five and two, um, I believe five and three, even maybe it was what it was, but, you know, I just think that we need consistency and, 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 and really just average talent because I think, I think it's a talented team. I don't think it's a team that is going to contend for a Super Bowl. Um, but uh, you know, if they were a playoff team with Phil, I think if we can get somewhere in between, like you said, in between 2017 and 2019, that this Colts team shouldn't take a step back next year. I wouldn't think that they would take a step back. I mean, I would be shocked even. I mean, Carson yeah, Wentz, definitely. Carson, Carson had issues 
protecting the football last year, I think the observation of his mechanics were were 100% off. You know, I've watched pretty much every snap that Carson's ever played, you know, as an Eagle. One of the interesting things he came into 2020 is he gained about 25 pounds. He put on weight to protect himself physically, right? Because he was known for always getting hurt and everything else. And he played, well, until he got benched. Health health wasn't the problem this year. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, he was still trying to play quarterback because, you know, in a lot of ways, if you go back and watch the 2017 tape on Carson Wentz, he looks eerily similar to what we see from Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't quite have the arm strength or maybe not. He has about the same arm strength, but he doesn't have the weird releases, the stuff that, you know, right. make the your jaw angle. drop when, when you mm-hmm. watch Mahomes. Right. But Mahomes, uh, but what, what Wentz was so great at was his ability to navigate the pocket. He had great pocket awareness and an ability to seemingly get out of situations where he's got two, three guys bearing down on him, and yet he's scrambling for another few yards. And we didn't see that element of him. Now, he's a hell of a lot more mobile than Phil Rivers, right? I mean, yes, you know, Phil, for uh, – uh, and look, he at that point in your career, your, his career, you're 39 years old, it's going to be a lot of quick release. It's going to be a lot of short passing game. You're not going to be able to stretch the field. But one of the reasons, and I guess, look, you have T.Y. Hilton, who's a free agent. I think mm-hmm. it seems like he's going to come back to Indy. There's, yeah. It could be up in the air. I loved Michael Pittman Jr. coming out of um, college. He was a Belindicoff finalist at USC, and mm-hmm. he fell pretty late in the draft. It was also it was a loaded wide receiver class last right. year. But I'm curious as to – because Carson, even though he can take teams to a certain extent by himself, he needs to have other pieces around him. What other yeah. pieces on the offense are missing? You mentioned left tackle earlier, but you still got Quentin Nelson up front. You still have Jonathan yeah. Taylor in the backfield. Do they mm. go after a Kenny Galladay and Allen Robinson, a Zach Ertz, who more than likely is going to get released here in the next couple mm. of weeks? Yeah, that's the one that I say is is most um, necessary is that tight end position. Um, and, and look, they've gotten a lot of production out of their current tight ends. Um, you know, way more than you would expect for where they've been drafted. You know, Jack Doyle's been very consistent. Uh, we did bring in last year, um, oh, uh, Trey Burton, Trey, right? Burton, Trey yeah. Burton, and he he proved to have some left in the tank after what we had seen in Chicago kind of fall apart a little. Even Mo um, Ali Cox had a pretty yeah. good year, and I think exactly. he's, a, he's a young guy who I still think has some good upside to him. Definitely. So it's a, it's a talented room of, of tight ends for where they've been selected and what we've kind of, I guess, uh, expected to get out of them. Um, but I, I do think that we do need a, a clear cut, you know, top option at tight end. I have seen some stuff that's also mentioned a potentially Hunter Henry in free agency. Mm. Um, he's someone that is going to demand a decent amount of money, I believe. Um, but he's a guy that also, you know, coming from the chargers had some familiarity with the offensive staff that was over there. That's now in Indianapolis. So there's some connections there. There was times where they thought Zach Ertz was going to be part of this trade to the Colts. Uh, they've been mentioning other players yeah. um, and Zach Ertz name popped up and it does seem probably eventually, I know you guys are making a bunch of cuts right now, you know, Alshon, Deshaun Jackson, some other guys getting thrown out there. Um, eventually it seems like, like Ertz is going to be like that too. He asked I, for his I release. Be yeah. So I, yeah. I think if they don't find a trade partner, I think Zach Ertz is, is definitely, definitely out the door. I I'm curious, I guess now I, I kind of want to talk about the defense because the Colts defense was, like you said, top 10 in, in all three of those units, which is mm-hmm. objectively very difficult to do. And I believe they were the only team in the NFL that had that, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, so correct. 
So he's walking into a situation kind of similar to what the Eagles were like at the end of 16, 17, you know, he's got a good roster around him, but the Eagles defense that year, obviously people remember the Super Bowl in which Tom Brady throws for 500 yards. Mm -hmm. and It's the most yards in an NFL game ever, Mm -hmm. but that Eagles defense carried them through the playoffs. They played great against Minnesota. They shut down the Falcons there in the divisional round you know, having those guys in the middle, there's a lot of individual talented players on the Colts, but will that defense this upcoming year be able to hold up the other end, you know, being able to play complimentary football? Cause I think that's something that hurt the Eagles in the last couple of years with Carson. Yeah. You know, the defense took a, a step forward and it was the most enjoyable Colts defense I've honestly watched in my lifetime. You know, we have been accustomed to for the last decade for Andrew Luck just carrying us into the playoffs while having a bottom tier defense. And, you know, now we have guys, you know, DeForest Buckner on the defensive line, mm-hmm. Darius Leonard at linebacker. Uh, we have this rookie Julian Blackman out of uh, Utah who came on strong in his rookie year, uh, you know, for the defense, we need uh, another linebacker. Um, and and actually there's, there's definitely some, some concerns that the Colts defense probably takes a step back next year. Uh, Xavier Rhodes is heading into free agency. There is mutual interest. He was able to revitalize himself and have a really good year after a a really bad finish in Minnesota. So if he just is saying, well, let's just make some money here. I can come back, but he may want to test the waters. If he does, we, we desperately need help at the cornerback position. That would be my number one concern heading into free agency anyways, is just because we failed to see young guys like Rocky Yassine really take that next step. I have questions at the corner position. Um, and then the other, other thing too, that I need, we need another pass rusher. Uh, you know, Justin Houston is up there in age, didn't have a great season last year and, and isn't getting younger. So I would expect a replacement there, uh, whether that be in the draft or free agency, but what, what Chris Ballard has done for a few years now is he sat back in free agency. He's accumulated draft picks. He's drafted extremely well over the last few years. And and what's funny to take a look at is this Colts team. Now we do bring on the Carson Wentz contract, but because we're removing Philip Rivers, 25 year salary, and because we're removing Jacoby Brissett's 17 and a half million salary, we're actually not losing a ton in, in cap space. So we are going to be, you know, we have the third or fourth most in the NFL heading in. I say, we, Jeez, the Colts have the third or fourth most. I always, I always get in a bad habit of that with the Colts. Oh, I did um, the same thing. <laughs> so we, there is a lot of cap space heading into the year, and it, it seems to be that with this trade, Chris Ballard is finally going to start spending in free agency. So I, I would expect that to come by way of a corner and a uh, defensive end, and I would expect them to probably go tackle and wide receiver early on in free agency. But I think this is going to be the year that Chris Ballard finally says, all right, I'm going to open up the uh, – I'm going to open up the bank a little bit and start paying some of these guys in free agency. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's a loaded cornerback class this year. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially in the first round, kind of that back half there, the two guys are up at the top, Patrick certain and uh, the kid from Virginia tech. And then kind of in that back half there, right around where that 21, where the Colts are, there's a couple other names kind of floating around. I also yeah. look at someone like Leonard Williams, right? Like you said, pass rusher, but mm-hmm. interior defensive line play has become such a, difference maker when you look at the top defenses in the NFL, right? And the easy example is obviously Aaron Donald, which Aaron Donalds don't grow on trees, but the, the resurgence that Leonard Williams had going from the jets, just switching over locker rooms and playing for the giants there, he was really good for them. And Mm -hmm. that giants defense, people said it all year, man, they have a sneaky, good defense. They're, they're a team that you don't really want to sleep on, on the defensive side of the ball. Mm -hmm. 
I, I'd like to see a move like that. And then, like you said, maybe spend that some of that money. I mean, Allen Robinson's out there. If you have a, a, a wide receiver group of Allen Robinson and Michael Pittman and you let T.Y. walk, which I think for Colts fans would be probably a tough thing to see, right? He's one of the more liked people yeah. in that Indianapolis franchise over the last few years, right? Right. Yeah. I I'm team let T.Y. walk. Unfortunately, Ooh. I just, I, I'm at the point. I, I understand bringing him back and he's meant a lot to the Colts this decade. I mean, you know, he's been the one consistent face since back, you know, he, he's lasted longer than Andrew Luck. They came out in the same class. He's definitely a guy that has done a lot for Indianapolis, but last year was rough for him. It didn't, yeah. it didn't happen until about game 11 or 12 where he really started getting things going. Um, he does have a little bit of a, an injury problem as of late. Um, you know, if, if, if it's, if it's affordable, then yes. I mean, I, I don't know if he's going to be a guy that demands a lot of money in free agency. So yeah. he's mentioned he's either going to come back to the Colts or probably retire, which is crazy to think because he's also not that old. He's only no. 31, 32 years old. Um, but he wants to only spend his career in Indy. So he probably does come back. I'm okay not bringing him back just because I, I think we're at a point where I, I don't think we're going to get a better version of TY anymore. And if we're at that point, um, I would rather utilize, you know, like you said, some of those guys in free agency that are available and, and these draft class, it's almost become like running backs now where it's just, they grow on trees. They're talented yeah. classes two years in a row. Now next year as well, you can find talented receivers in rounds three and four. This free agency. I mean, I'm, I, we were going through it on the pod last week, the free agency class for wide receivers this year of like high quality, like the bottom of the high quality guys is Nelson Aguilar. And there's about <laughs> 12 names ahead of them. Exactly. You know, and, and, you know, talk about a guy who has history playing well with Carson Wentz and Aguilar. They had a really good off schedule kind of chemistry, right? It's one mm -hmm. of the things that helped make Carson so good when the play would break down, especially right. now when we see he's not reading the field the same way and he hasn't for a couple of years. And that's also going to be part of the problem in trying to resurrect him. Uh, I'm curious here. And, and to be honest, I don't know what my question is on this. It's just a yeah. fascinating chain of events. Going back to Josh McDaniels, right? Josh McDaniels taking the Indianapolis Colts head coaching job and then rescinding that has led to a chain of events that have put now the Colts offensive, well, the Eagle as at the time offensive coordinator now is the head coach of, you know, uh, the Indianapolis Colts, right. of Frank Reich, followed by only a couple of years later now, Nick Sirianni with the Eagles as the head coach, uh, just continually moving down to now we have the, the quarterback of the Eagles, for the last five years now go it's a, it's a crazy chain of events that one thing led to another led to another and these two franchises which had no connection prior to now have this bizarre history kind of interwoven between each other yeah it, i love when things like that happen where these franchises get intertwined with each other and i mean look there's another one in uh, you know, the West Coast version of it with the LA Rams and, and now, you know, them and the Lions, they're going to be kind of intertwined because the Lions gave up on Matt Stafford. There's all these different weird connections now. And, and we're going to see a few more. Sam Darnold's going to be on the move. There's going to be these other guys. It is really funny because now it, it's happened in way more ways than you would expect. You know, like you said, with the coaching flips and now the quarterback flips. Going back to, I mean, it's been a mess for Chris Ballard. It's been a mess for him. <laughs> Coming in as a GM, uh, you, you know, you move on from Chuck Pagano, but you always had your franchise quarterback. Then you offer Josh McDaniels and he, you, you set up the office for him and then he just doesn't get on the flight. So it's like, okay, well, we've already been through the interview process. So now we got to find who's next. We stumble into Frank Reich, which look, I, I, I had a little 
had a little problem with Frank Reich in the first few weeks. Um, I think, I think more so he was just trying to figure out what he could get out of Phillip rivers than anything. I think he was just trying to minimize from him um, and, you know, being able to see what he's capable of, but I, I've been thoroughly impressed with him. And, and despite, like you said, we've gone through four quarterbacks in four years now, you know, with Jacoby, uh, Andrew, uh, Phillip, and now Carson, the fact that the Colts have still been at the very least an eight and eight team, in that time frame, I have a lot of respect for, for Chris Ballard. Um, and now it's, you know, now it's at that point where it seems like, look, we have Carson tied up for at least two years, you know, with, with the, the cap hits and things like yeah, that before gonna, you can get rid of him without the exactly. cap. Hit. Yeah. So now it's going to be, we're actually going to be able to see what is this Colts team? Because every year it seemed up until this point, we're, we're just getting something new, something new recycled quarterbacks. Um, you know, it's, it's nice to say, okay, we'll have at least Carson for the next two years at the, at the very least, that's what he's going to be. And if, if it's, and let's say it hits, right. Let's say Carson does end up working out. That contract is, will become one of the most valuable contracts in the NFL. If Carson becomes any semblance of 2017 Carson Wentz, you're basically paying him less per year than what Kirk cousins got on the open market, right? His deal was three years, 96 million. You're getting Carson with four years left on his contract for, I think it's only about 98 million. Overall, yeah. so your yeah. per year value drops significantly compared to guys like you know Kirk Cousins with a ceiling that could be significantly higher. And you're going to give mm-hmm. Carson at least one year, unless he's really bad. Uh, you're going to give him at least one year, more than likely two, to really see if you can kind of uh, fix some of the bad habits that had been developed in Philadelphia. I, I agree with you completely, Chris Ballard. And, and what's crazy about that too, Blake, is that Chris Ballard. is now looked at as one of the best GMs in all of football. I think he's held in that, in that regard. And yet he's Mm -hmm. done it with a shit sandwich handed to him the entire time. You know, he's really turned garbage into gold throughout his entire tenure as the GM there. Uh, Two last things here. One last thing here on the Colts. And then we're going to talk a little bit of JMU football. Cause how could, how could we not? Exactly. Uh, The Eagles new head coach, Nick Sirianni. What can Eagles fans expect out of him? Because I mean, I'm as locked into the NFL as I think, you know, way more than your average fan. And overall, I'm, I'm obsessed with the league. And I really didn't know much about him or what to make of the hire and was frankly shocked when I saw the news come across. So what can Eagles fans expect from their new head coach? I was shocked with the hire too. Um, you know, I thought Nick was maybe another year away from getting his first job, but it's kind of one of those situations, kind of like when the Colts hired Frank Reich, it's, you know, you fire your head coach that late into the year, you've already missed out on the top candidates. They've already been picked up by a lot of teams. So you're heading in with a, a much smaller pool of candidates to choose from. The one thing that I'll say about Nick Sirianni is that I, I know that press conference, everybody loved to harp on that and really give him a lot of crap. He's going yeah. to be a really lovable head coach, at least in the very sense of character. He is a, he's just, he, he loves, he loves ball. He doesn't talk professionally. He doesn't talk like he loves, you know, interviewing with reporters. He's not that kind of guy. He's not someone who loves to talk about himself. He's going to be very focused on the team. And you're, you're getting a guy who, who understands this situation. He understands it's a risk for him to take his first head coaching job in a situation where, look, there was a lot of problems that Philadelphia was facing. Um, you know, they still have to now address the quarterback position. You know, they've got Jalen. They've got the sixth overall pick. Um, they've got a team that does need to address a lot of needs. The offensive line's getting a little bit older. Um, you know, some players on defense as well, too. So I, I think what you're going to get is an extremely uh, – he's going to put his all into making this work. Um, you know, 
what what we're going to get out of him X's and O's. I'm not really sure. Frank Reich really controlled the ship here a lot. That's that's just who he is. He did a yeah. lot in Philadelphia. He's doing it all basically offensively here. What you can hope for, though, is that Nick Sirianni took a lot of that and is going to run with it because he did work with Frank in Los Angeles when they both worked for the Chargers. He was an assistant yeah. there. He had the opportunity to be an OC. Uh, Frank was still calling the play. So, you know, I'm sure he had some input there, but not a ton. Um, so now you're going to see him really give his all and have his own chance to be him. I, I, I can't necessarily say I, I think it's going to be a slam dunk hire and it's going to work, but I do think at the very least the the fan base is going to grow to love Nick Sirianni. Um, and then if it can turn into wins, I think, you know, you know, hopefully that's that's the end goal. But at the very least, they're going to like the person they're getting out of their head coach. And that, that's been the sentiment that I've heard almost universally is that the players are going to love him. Like, like right. he is a way in connecting with players that is truly unique. And it's something that I think Doug did a really good job with in Philly too. And overall, I think the, the biggest issue in what happened with the Eagles is the front office. But, and what I kind of alluded to here in the open was it was everything. It was, it was everyone from Carson to Doug, to Howie, to Jeffrey Lurie, to getting shit luck with injuries. No, no team had more injuries over the last four years than the Philadelphia Eagles. And that's including the year that they won the Super Bowl. Right. And I think, one of the things that people loved about Doug was he was very relatable, you know, and he found a way to ingratiate himself within the, uh, not only the fan base, but amongst that locker room as, as a, as a leader, as someone who guys could feel they were connected with. And I think Sirianni is, is a younger version, again, inexperienced. One of the amazing things about Jeffrey Lurie is his track record uh, with head coaches is pretty fantastic. Mm -hmm. His yeah. very first uh, hire Ray Rhodes back in the early nineties, did not work out well, but then he took a risk in hiring Andy Reid, who was a quarterback's coach. He wasn't even the offensive coordinator in right. Green Bay. And then he turns out to be Andy Reid. Chip Kelly's first year was a 10 and 6 team, 10 and 6 his first two years. And then it starts to kind of fade out after that. And then obviously Doug goes on to lead him to a Super Bowl. So there should be room for opt uh, optimism with the Eagles. But at the same time, you know, it, it's an unproven commodity. So, mm -hmm. and I think there's some, some, wariness when it comes to how fans and the fan base feels towards Jeffrey Lurie and the front office. Uh, all, I mean, look, man, all that's fantastic. It's too early for me to ask this, so I won't, but I, I'm going to have you back on eventually because I want to know what you like, what the prediction is. Cause we still have the draft and free agency and we still got a lot to go before we can talk prediction stuff. Uh, but I'm fascinated to know and I appreciate all of the Colts coverage. Now for the real reason I brought you on JMU yeah. football was back <laughs> this weekend, baby. And just absolutely laid down the gauntlet against Moorhead State. Now, I think it was kind of expected. They were, <laughs> they were, uh, they won 80 to seven the last time that they played Moorhead State. And I believe you and I were yeah. both at school at the time covering the team. Uh, what is your outlook on the year? I mean, it, it's been a two horse race in the FCS for a while, really like a one and a half horse race, if, we, if, we, if we're being honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think this JMU team is, is special. And I think that loss to North Dakota State in the national championship game in 19, 1920, that season, uh, I think it really stung. And, I, and I'm curious mm -hmm. to see how they bounce back here in, in this bizarre spring football season, which I'm right. not complaining, but it's definitely out of the you know, ordinary. Right. Yeah. For JMU, you know, I mean, the way their schedule is, they're going to they're going to go undefeated this regular season. They're going to be probably the number two seed at the end of the year. I don't have a lot of confidence when it comes to the passing game. 
I personally have never been the highest on Cole Johnson. I like his frame. He does a lot um, that you like. He's a smart quarterback, but the arm talent has never really impressed me. He had a couple shots in that game Saturday. That was um, a great and, deep ball. Right. Oh, yeah. But it, it wasn't like he had to do much, you know, when, when you have, uh, what, 363 <laughs> rushing yards, 369 rushing yards. It's, oh, I yeah. mean, so, so in terms of um, having a multifaceted offense, I worry a little bit about the pass game. Um, they have some younger guys that, you know, will probably figure their way out six or seven games in the regular season. I could be completely wrong about it. They could have a great pass attack. Uh, but what they do have is a veteran offensive line, and they've got four plus they've got five or six animals running the football. I mean, they, and guys that can do different things, you know, Percy Ajay Obese is that lead back that really works well between the tackles. He's a shifty guy. He can break some ankles. Then you've got two guys like Jawan Hamilton. Um, and, uh, Oh, who broke off? Who was it that broke off the long touchdown? It was Van Horse, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got those two guys that just have great breakaway speed and, and Palmer and then Palmer, Palmer can run dudes over. So it's like Dude, you've got right? running backs that can do everything. They, they all do different things. Um, look, they're, they're going to be a top team. They're going to be a top seed going into the FCS. I do want to see a little bit more from the passing game. I don't want to overreact to a – look, it was, it was a beatdown. It was yeah. a beatdown on Saturday. But like you said, everybody was expecting it to be one. Um, it's going to be – the, the line was, what, 41? Yeah, like 41, 41 and a half. 41 and a half. And uh, I made some, some good money off that on Saturday, but uh, I was gonna say, I made, I made my boy, Danny Cannell. I made him bet it because, yeah. oh, uh, and he was like, cause he, you know, the, the, the national guys, they don't know shit about the FCS. And right. I was like, well, you know, I covered it for a couple of years. Like <laughs> yeah. I can, I can help you out a little bit. And yeah, I mean, they, they followed it all. I think you hit it on the head. The one thing I like about Cole Johnson is he made his first career start in 2016 so long ago right and he has had to be patient he was behind brian shore and now was behind ben Danucci. i've been on the record i was not a ben Danucci fan in college i uh, felt like we talked about the hero ball that was he was the i am the power five quarterback transferring down to the fcs and i can do more than anyone else in this field and that is true but ultimately in that national championship game when they're driving down the field and all, and that was the thing, right? Cause when they lost to Colgate the year before in that upset in the uh, second round of the playoffs, but Danucci was still in full on hero ball mode. And what I liked about him last year was he really took a step back and limited himself, made smart plays, used his legs when he could mm-hmm. and was, you know, advantageous. Like he, he picked and chose his times to make deep, you know, to make the big play. Right. Cole Johnson is not going to turn the football over. Cole Johnson's not going to throw the ball when you're at third and goal on the two yard line and you're three yards away from the line of scrimmage and throw across your body for an interception to go against North Dakota state to not lose the national championship. Right. Cause there's plenty of things that lead up to it that got them into that position. But I think Cole Johnson's going to do a really good job of protecting the ball, knowing he's got those horses behind him. And I watched a little bit of that North Dakota state game over the weekend as well. Yeah. And I'm telling you right now, JMU's offensive line, I think, can steamroll them. They are like a, a group of five, like a good group of five level of, of offensive linemen. And mm-hmm. that's a big calling card of Signetti, right? Remember when Signetti was at Elon, that running game, those offensive – it's like, where the hell did Elon come from? Exactly. And they invested in the offensive line. And and when they won the national championship in 17, it was the same deal, right? It was running behind the Aaron Stinneys of the world, who we just saw go on to win a Super Bowl playing behind Tom Brady, or in front of Tom Brady, right. I should say. So optimism's high in the Berg, as it seems to be every year – yeah. Uh, with college football, right? Or at least with JMU yeah. football. It's been a ton Definitely. of fun. 
look, man, uh, I really appreciate the time. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, this was this was a ton of fun. I really appreciate you being the inaugural first guest here uh, of this of the pod. So thank you for coming on, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. I want to give a huge shout out once again to uh, my man Blake Pace. It was a really fun interview. It was awesome getting to hear a little bit more on the Indianapolis side. Uh, of the Carson Wentz deal and kind of what to expect from the Colts here moving forward, because, you know, they, they are a team that are primed with the guys that they have around and, and already in that organization to, to try to make a run and really hope that, you know, Carson Wentz comes in there and, and makes an immediate impact for them. So you can go follow Blake at Blake Andrew pace. Uh, like you said, he's a, a contributor there for the Colts SB nation affiliate as well as the quick hits podcast uh, which hopefully you will hear me on there uh, sooner rather than later so uh, without further ado time to wrap up the pod with a little bit of sports gumbo we had a tremendous meal man we had uh, smothered pork chops fried chicken collard greens man the guys loved it (laughs) just like one big family eating together and i'm gonna be in about uh, 18 to 22 homes next week so that means about 18 to 22 gumbos so uh (laughs) this is gonna be great every year the nhl does something pretty unique that no other pro sports league in america kind of has a rival for they do a showcase at an outdoor stadium usually a baseball stadium football stadium and they've been doing it now for a little over 10 years which i can't believe it's been going on that long but what's really awesome about this is is they take a sport that's normally played inside hockey and they bring it back to its roots they put the game outside they fill up a stadium it's become a spectacle and originally it was just the winter classic it was you'd have one every year in a major city with two major franchises going up against it and they'd play at wrigley field Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, Fenway Park. They'd go to these outdoor venues and it grew in such popularity that they decided to expand it and they made an outdoor series. So they would start doing two, three, four of these a year. Well, this year they did something a little bit different. They went out to Lake Tahoe in Utah, which is one of the most scenic places in all of America. It is truly a beautiful and gorgeous drop back for what was an awesome weekend of hockey. Now, instead of the traditional winter classic formula, which is, hey, we're going to find a baseball stadium and fill it up with people. And that way you would have a stadium of 80,000 people as opposed to an arena, which maybe only holds 40,000 people. But because of COVID and everything else, and I believe this was on the schedule before COVID, they decided to make an outdoor hockey series one weekend, which was this past weekend, outdoors, literally right next to a lake. No stands, no fans, nothing. It's an unbelievable backdrop that fits so perfectly with the imagery of hockey that once again, I found myself glued to the television and feeling the same feelings that I did the first time I watched the original Winter Classic. Because ultimately, look, as awesome as the stadium series is, the idea behind it felt a little stale. Like I said, they've been doing this for over a decade now. So to come in here in 2021 and have an outdoor sporting event off the the coast of one of the most beautiful and scenic places in all of America was a truly unique perspective and a, a truly unique event. What's really cool about this whole series, though, is how the players embrace it, right? In sports, we get you know, these prima donna type athletes who 
you know, they need every single aspect of it to be perfect. They need their, their playing surface to be manicured perfectly. They need the basketball courts that they play on to be in absolute tip top shape, right? Cause it's professional sports. We kind of expect that out of professional sports. One of the big issues they have with these outdoor events and these out, this outdoor series is the quality of the ice because they can't control the weather that day. What happens if you have an unseasonably warm afternoon in Philadelphia or Chicago one day, right? What happens is the ice gets choppy. It's nowhere near the same quality that you would have, you know, on, in an indoor controlled facility. But the players don't care. The players embrace it and love every aspect of it. I mean, I'm telling you right now, hockey players are the coolest professional athletes out there. They just go about their business. They're all about the team. They grind. They play through the toughest shit year, uh, year in, year out, night in, night out. And when they get an opportunity where they say, hey, you can go play a hockey game in Fenway Park or, you know, on the coast of Lake Tahoe, they don't bat an eye. They say when and where, let's lace them up. Let's get playing. And to me, it's a u- unique event that happens every single year that no other sport can do. No other sport would be able to pull off something like this. And it's a shame because what it does for the game, it is a window every single year where you know that the NHL is going to get top ratings higher than the NBA, which doesn't happen very often for the NHL. But the outdoor series, the stadium series, and having it this year in Lake Tahoe with that backdrop was truly, truly beautiful. And one of the coolest sporting events that I've seen that's been put on here in the last five years, at least. Sorry, I tell you, me tug dog, yeah. Me tug dog, yeah. Okay. The Australian Open wrapped up this past weekend. Now, Many of you probably didn't get a chance to watch it because, you know, it gets aired at three o'clock in the morning and we usually wake up to whoever won the night before. But Naomi Osaka won her third major this past weekend. She did so beating Serena Williams on the way to get there and then knocking off American Jennifer Brady. Naomi Osaka has some real potential when we're talking about the highest tier of superstars in the sports world. She made $37 million last year, not just in you know tour earnings, but all-encompassing, which is extremely high considering tennis is not one of the big sports, particularly in America. You know, Internationally, it has a phenomenal following. And that's part of the reason why I think Osaka has such high potential when it comes to her future as a professional athlete. She kind of has a, a Tiger Woods vibe to her. She's multicultural in the fact that people from all over the world can look at her and relate. Ethnically, she's incredibly diverse. And she is object- she's objectively just a really cool, you know, woman. Like she's phenomenally talented in her sport. She's clear in a way one of the top two or three players on the women's side. And on top of it, she has an unbelievable relatability to her. And she has just simply, in a lot of ways, based off of her appearance and what she stands for, she has an ability to resonate on an international level that not many stars and not many pro athletes have the opportunity to do. You know, all the stuff with her and and how much she loves Kobe Bryant. And not only did she do it last year at the Australian Open after Kobe had passed, she did it at the U.S. Open. And now she did at the Australian Open. She was repping LA Lakers gear. She was repping Kobe jerseys. 
And she did it for specific reasons, you know, not because she was trying to make people like her or anything else, but because she's authentic. And to her, Kobe meant the world. So when we see in the next 10 years as Serena Williams' career will more than likely end, and we've seen Naomi Osaka get the best of Serena in the majority of their meetings, particularly in the majors, the more we're going to see Osaka become one of the primary, definitely female figures, but I think just all in all athletes in the world of sports. I think that's a really cool thing for the young women growing up in the world to look up and see a role model like that. I get right there, Kalei. I ready out. We're coming down the home stretch when it comes to college basketball. And right now, as I had said in previous pods, college basketball feels very different than it does in previous years. The Blue Bloods are not quite producing in the way that we're accustomed to them of producing. We're not seeing the one and done stars who are taking over. There is no Zion. There is no Anthony Davis. There is no John Wall, right? We're not seeing those kinds of players dominate basketball. What we are seeing are guys like Luca Garza, who just became the all-time leading point scorer in Iowa history last night. The Big Ten and the Big 12 are the two best conferences in college basketball, and do not think twice about that. Historically, we would say the ACC, the Big East, the Big Ten has moments, but look, they haven't won a national title in forever. And the Big 12, traditionally, you think of Kansas, and that's it. Outside of Kansas, you don't really think of any other programs in the Big 12 as being basketball schools. In recent history, you can make the case because of Trey, uh, Trey Young that you know Oklahoma is kind of in there. Long Kruger is a great head coach, but Oklahoma is not one of those national brands when it comes to basketball. And yet the Big 12 and the Big 10 are still clear away favorites when it comes to the top two conferences here in the NCAA. Both conferences are full of teams that are chock full of vets that have a lot of experience, guys who have been there two, three, in a lot of cases, four years, guys who have tournament experience, whether it's a conference tournament or the NCAA, guys who have grown together, worked together, understand the coach that brought them in have grown and developed into really, really good basketball players. And that has kind of been the antithesis of what we have grown to expect out of college basketball over the last decade. Now, in a normal year, I'm not sure if we would still be seeing the Big 12 and the Big 10 be the dominant forces because of experience and veteran leadership. But this year, because of COVID, things are a little bit different. The instability, the the amount of challenges that players have to face on a night-in, night-out basis trying to play college basketball in the middle of a pandemic. So I don't know if this is going to be some sort of changing of the tides, right, where all of a sudden now the teams that are built like old-school Duke teams, right, where they used to say, you know, you're going to stay here, you're going to go until you graduate and get your degree, and graduation rate mattered. People cared about that stuff. I don't know if we're going to continue to see that. But I think there's a chance because of the way that the one and dones have started to fade out in college basketball, because the one and done rule is more than likely going to be abolished here in the next couple of years. And because more and more guys are going to start opting into the G league or playing overseas somewhere. So maybe this is the beginning of seeing teams like Baylor who have been together now for two or three years and Michigan who, despite only having a coach who's only been there, this is only Juwan Howard's second season at Michigan that team 
is full of veteran leadership with a lot of experience. And in a COVID world, that absolutely makes you a better team and gives you a better chance to make a run here in the NCAA tournament. But what that will do in a post-COVID world, that's still undecided. But it's an interesting trajectory, and I think it could be the direction that we see college basketball heading. Wow. Damn. This weekend, we saw Max Homa win at Riviera. He won the Genesis Invitational. Now, many of you are saying to yourself, I don't know who Max Homa is. And I'd say I do because I bet on him to win and brought in a shitload of money. Now, Max Homa is not any sort of world beater on the, the PGA Tour. He's a decent player. He struggled over the last couple of years. He'd been playing hot going into this tournament. It also happens to be his all-time favorite course that he grew up going to. But what I've noticed here with the PGA is that for the last four weekends, they have delivered a product that legitimately stands out in a world where people are always looking for more sports. The last five weeks, we had Homo win at Riviera, Daniel Berger win at Pebble Beach, Brooks Kepka won at the Waste Management Open at TPC Sawgrass, Patrick Reed winning at Torrey Pines, and Siwoo Kim winning at McKinta. That's five weeks at five excellent venues with five very different winners and pretty much all but one gained national media coverage for good and bad, right? Patrick Reed was in the news because he allegedly cheated and they couldn't quite prove it. And then they went back and Patrick Reed is a villain of golf, but you know what sells tickets? You know what brings eyeballs to the TV? Villains. Brooks Kepka won. He might be the exact opposite of Patrick Reed, which is the most likable star on the tour. So you have two guys there who are in the top 15 golfers in the world, top 10 if they're both swinging it right, in back-to-back weeks winning at two fantastic venues. The Waste Management Open every single year is one of the must-watch venues in all of sports. It's the one golf event where they let fans act like they're at a football game. And it's just, it's remarkable to see. And look, it was in Arizona. They had limited attendance, but it was still rowdy as all hell. And at that Waste Management Open, Jordan Spieth had a lead going down to the end, right? James Hahn was in contention. There were so many guys that were in contention on that Sunday. That Sunday of golf leading up to the, in that final round of the Waste Management Open was exhilarating. We all went into it thinking, oh, Jordan Spieth's going to win this. Nope. Sorry, Jordan. <laughs> the, the slow streak continues for you, my friend. The following week, just last weekend, the PGA was at Pebble Beach, one of the most famous golf courses in the world. Definitely one of the most famous ones in America. That was, again, Jordan Spieth. And, and that field, too, wasn't as loaded as a lot of the other ones are, where you see guys like Dustin Johnson didn't play, Brooks Kepka didn't play. There were a few guys who didn't play in that. But those who did played exceptionally well at an incredible venue. And once again, you had Jordan Spieth, a, a household name in golf, going into the final round as the leader, eventually kind of tailing off there until Daniel Berger ended up just playing his ass off down the stretch and eagling 18 to win the tournament. And then we have yesterday, Max Homa, hometown kid in LA at Riviera, battling Dustin Johnson, Tony Finau, all the way down to the wire. He was even going up against another feel-good story in Sam Burns, kid who had never won on the PGA Tour before. 
this field week in and week out that we're seeing in golf, whether the big hitters play or not, has become so competitive that it makes every single Sunday a must watch. And look, we don't have football right now. So if the NFL was going on, I don't think anybody would be watching golf. But golf is getting legit coverage right now, like legitimate national coverage. And they're doing it all without Tiger Woods playing in any of these events. He's currently out rehabbing his back injury. And in tournaments that aren't considered to be the traditional golf powerhouses, these aren't majors. They're not even things like the Players or the Ryder Cup that still get a lot of eyeballs for those who are big fans of golf. These are just your week-in, week-out tournaments that they have throughout the entire year. And I'm telling you right now, this is some of the best golf consistently that we have seen in a long time. And it is interesting that almost every single one of them make a reference to Tiger Woods after they win. But we get to this point now where, hey, you're either getting stars like Brooks Kepka, villains like Patrick Reed, no, you know, guys who don't have big naming. Max Homa is famous for being the guy who critiques other people's swings on Twitter to be funny, he wanted. He even did a little bit of stand-up comedy when he was younger. So we're getting all of these winners from all of these different parts of the world. Siwoo Kim, you know, from South Korea coming over and, and dominating. It's an international sport with international appeal that is playing right now some of the best golf collectively that we've seen out of the PGA in a really, really long time. And I'm telling you now, it is fantastic for the sport of golf. And I get it still has the old man sport, you know, who wants to sit around and watch golf. It's boring, blah, blah, blah. If you're hungover on a Sunday or you're tired on a Sunday and you just want to relax and watch some beautiful scenery, especially right now in COVID when nobody can go out and go places and travel the world, sit down and watch a little bit of golf or at least watch the back nine. Cause I'm telling you right now, it is remarkable to see what, is happening on the tour. And it, it's not just the big names. It's not just Dustin Johnson. It's not just Brooks Kepka or Justin Rose or Justin Thomas. It's the whole field. And it's absolutely phenomenal for golf. All right, y'all. That's all I got for you guys today. Want to shout out my man, Blake Pace. Again, check his podcast out, Quick Hits. You can also read his stuff from the Colts SB Nation website. You can follow him at Blake Andrew Pace on Twitter. Uh, that was a really fun interview, and I'm looking forward to doing some more here down the road. Um, we'll have another pot out for you here this week. Not exactly sure what it's going to be yet, but I can tell you now it's going to be great. So thank you all for listening once again. Like, rate, review, all that crap. Appreciate you all for listening, and uh, take it easy. Have a wonderful week, and we'll be back with you here on The Read Option a little later on. Take care, y'all.